2: Hey everyone from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos.
0: And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, Shang Tao is the seventh of ten children born to Laotian refugee parents, and she is the next mayor of Oakland, California.
2: That's right. City Councilwoman and Oakland Mayor-elect, Shang Tao, is here. She has overcome incredible odds, including being homeless as a young mother. And now at 37, she will take over as Oakland's next mayor early next year. Big job. Big job. We'll, we'll have a lot to talk to her about. But first, Scott, uh, let's start in Sacramento, where there was the beginning of a new legislative session, a brand new legislature being sworn in, and Newsom dropped not a lot of details. Details on that oil legislation
0: he's. Yeah, been... he's been talking about that. I mean, during the campaign, you know, before the November election, he was making a big deal about going after these excessive profits that oil companies have been making. And uh, finally, uh, as you said on Monday, released, I would say the outline, perhaps some detail. There's some language in there as well. Nancy Skinner, the uh, state senator from the East Bay, is going to carry it. And basically, it would it, carry what? <laughs> it, carry what? Yeah, well, that's TBD. But uh, it, it's going to basically, they want to empower the Energy Commission to kind of keep a closer eye on. Shutting down of refineries and excess profits as defined by the legislation. And then, if there is a penalty assessed, then it is a penalty, not a tax, right, so that gives which requires simple- one third versus, or half versus two thirds vote to so right, make so it the- easier.
2: So the idea being that legislature might be a little more likely to pass this. And yeah, I mean, I did some reporting, Scott, on just like how oil played. They spent over $8 million in legislative races, mixed bag in terms of results. But what was most interesting to me is that the biggest spending race, uh, this cycle was in Sacramento, Dave Jones versus Angelique Ashby, oil poured over a million and a half dollars to support her. And she says she's with the governor yeah, I on don't, this. Yeah, I don't
0: want your money. Uh, yeah. So it, it is though, you know, f- for this new class, there's a lot of, it was like 30 new legislative coming in uh, it's you know it's it's a kind of a big ask to ask them to increase taxes especially in you know in the economy it's kind of weak so this will make it a little easier they won't need to right. you know take so many tough votes um, but you know I, I also kind of wonder if like this isn't closing the barn door if the horses have gotten out a little bit you know prices are coming down now I think the worst of it may be over but I, th- I think it might put the oil industry on notice that they're maybe right. being watched I actually more think
2: yeah some of the other uh, proposals around regulations of refineries are kind of more interesting and stand to be more impactful in a way, both from an oil price, but also from an environmental justice perspective. You know, there there's a lot of things that both local air boards and the state have not had power over, and those could be interesting. But you know, the governor got what he wanted. He got his headlines in the fall. He got to kind of come out and use oil as this big foil. Um, so. Newsom's probably... Careful what
0: you ask happy. for, though, sometimes. I'm such a big believer in unintended consequences or unexpected consequences, but we'll see. Oil industry says, oh, it's not going to help consumers, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it all works we'll out.
2: We'll see. All right. Well, a lot of action in D.C. this week, including just today, the marriage equality bill sent to President Biden's desk the same day the president got to announce that he was bringing N- uh, WNBA star Brittany Griner home from Russia, where she's been uh, imprisoned for months, um, and Just kind of hearkening back to San Francisco, Nancy Pelosi, our outgoing speaker and congresswoman, uh, presided over this marriage equality bill as one of her last acts. I mean, Scott, you remember when she got to Congress and made waves because she talked about AIDS and LGBT people. Well, not only that, she
0: ran against Harry Britt, who was an openly gay member of the Board of Supervisors at the time. And many in the gay community supported Harry Britt. They were excited about the possibility of having an openly gay member of Congress. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi won and she won over over the uh, LGBTQ community and you know the vote today and the fact that this is really one of her last big acts before she uh, becomes uh, just one of 435 speaker, speaker emeritus it was very emotional for her you know and, and, and as you said she came into congress in 1987 talking about uh, AIDS funding and uh, LGBT rights and that kind of thing and now you know all these years later 35 or whatever years later uh, she's going out with a pretty significant landmark piece of yeah. legislation that will Eliminate DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, and ensure, yeah, yeah, Bill Clinton's
2: uh, Clinton's signature
0: legislation.
2: Well, and I think that, you know, it really speaks to... Obviously, the changes she's seen over her time, but also just how you know. I don't think six months ago, when the Dobbs decision came out, which called you know same-sex marriage into question, uh, that we thought would have thought that this would have necessarily gotten done in this Congress. Well,
0: and with a lot of Republican support. I mean, there were five Republicans in the California delegation that voted for it, including Daryl Issa, Jay Obernolte. Some uh, you know that you would
2: conservative, more conservative
0: ones. You know, maybe they see the writing on the wall. I mean, seventy percent of the country now supports same-sex marriage, so it's not really a tough vote. Uh, Sort of amazing, um, but too tough for get. Kevin McCarthy and, uh, you know, the rest of the California delegation.
2: Right. And speaking of McCarthy, before we break, um, he is, it looks like, in line to become the next Speaker of the House, but not without some challenges from the right and just a lot of consternation. I mean, the, the question is who else could get it? And I don't think there's been a single who other candidate. Who else would candidate. want it, I think, is right. also
0: another question. I mean, Andy Biggs, who is a extreme right wing member of the Freedom Caucus, helped organize a rally that Helped lead to January 6th. He is going to challenge McCarthy. I don't think he, you know, there's no way he's going to get 218 votes, but it's going to make McCarthy's life a little more miserable if that's and, possible. Right. Uh, because, you know, with that majority, tiny majority, and in, in that caucus, I mean, Nancy Pelosi was able to keep them all together somehow. I don't, there's no way Kevin McCarthy no. or any other.
2: So I think the question in the coming weeks is to watch what does he promise to, especially the Freedom Caucus, and what does that mean for. The debt ceiling, the budget, everything Under else. Biden, yeah. you
0: know, hearings and goes Merrick on. Garland impeached the president. Yeah. We'll
2: all right. We'll leave it there. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by Oakland Mayor-elect Shang Tao. You are listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer and we are thrilled to have Oakland City Councilwoman Shang Tao here. She was just elected as mayor, a job she'll take over next month. Shang Tao, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, we're always excited these days to get guests in person. So we want to talk about all your plans for Oakland, but we would like to start with your very uh, compelling life story. Your parents fled Laos refugees. Tell us a little bit about Before they came here and had... 10 kids. What what was their journey like to America?
1: Absolutely. So my parents, uh, it wasn't a, uh, a fairy tale uh, love story or anything like that. Um, it was during the Vietnam War. There was also a secret war and there were a lot of bombs that um, you know, the Hmong people, we live in the jungles and in the hills of Laos mainly, but also you can also find Hmong people in the jungles and mountains of Vietnam and China as well. But because of that, um, you know, the Hmong people had to choose between joining forces with the American CIA or, you know, joining forces with the communist Viet Cong and and then not just that, but the Laos as well, too. And so many of the Hmongs uh, actually chose to be part of uh, the American CIA. And because of that, uh, they helped a lot in regards to navigating the jungles for uh, the Americans and not just that, but really helping with those who were hurt on the ground. And uh, my parents fled. Um, a lot. You, I heard a lot of stories about how families fled, and when you had an infant or a small, a younger child, they fed them little pieces of opium so they would go Oof. to sleep, so they wouldn't be loud. Mm. Sometimes babies never woke up. Mm. And sometimes Terrible. parents refused to leave their uh, kids uh, or give kids uh, opium, and so they stayed behind. Uh, just no one knows what happened to them, and so.
0: Yeah. So yeah. you, you the, they eventually settled in California. I think you grew up in Stockton, 10 children. As Marisa said, you were number seven, I yeah. think. You know, oftentimes we hear about refugees coming to this country, whether it's Vietnam or Cuba, and it really affects the way they look at the world and politics. And I'm wondering, how did that affect, you know, your worldview as a kid based mm-hmm. on what they told you?
1: Um, you know, my, I remember the day that my dad became a citizen and um, he was able to vote. And he was just so excited, excited to vote and be part of the political world here in the United States. And so uh, politics is uh, is important to the Hmong community. Um, it's about activation. They do believe in um, making sure that their voices are heard. Uh, but for me, how that shaped me is that um, it was really through, you know, p- we have our own politics within the Mol- the Hmong clans as well. We have 18 clans. And so um, my dad being a leader in our Tao clan, it really shaped how I view uh, politics uh, American politics uh, and the view was always around community building. Community. If you can have, if you build on community, then that's how you keep yourself safer. And not just that, but that's how you understand what resources are needed so that you can deliver on your promises. And so that's kind of the leadership that I lead with right now. Yeah. But I understand you clashed with your parents and the expectations of traditional
2: gender roles yes. in your family and and culture. Can you talk about that and like how did that play
1: out? Yeah. So I've actually been uh, really rebellious ever since I was. <laughs> <laughs> at a young age. So, yes, it's the patriarchy is real um, with, as, as just as it's real with many um, cultures. And they were wanting for the uh, girls to wake up around 6 a.m. to cook and clean while the boys could do whatever they want. And uh, my whole thing was, I'm not getting up out of my bed, even if I'm awake. Uh, if my brothers aren't getting up, I'm not. So, I always joke around, but it's true that to this day, I'm not the best cook.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: How did your
1: parents like react to that? They, uh, you know, my, uh, they're frustrated. You know, they tried, Everything from like, um, you know, uh, uh, physically trying to get me up, um, hollering and yelling and whatever have you. But I was just very stubborn. So uh, they kind of they, there was one point where my parents are like, all right, you're a lost cause.
0: <laughs> I assume you have some <laughs> sisters in that client yes, as well. I do. How did they respond to your rebellion?
1: You know, um, I wasn't so close to my sister growing up, uh, the age gap. But I just remember seeing my sisters. They would, they were, they were great listeners. They woke up and did what they needed to do. They hated it. Uh, they saw me as like just being rebellious and uh, annoying, <laughs> you know, because because I was rebellious, I was putting my parents in bad moods, and that would then, you know, uh, trickle out and affect all of my other siblings and so yeah. yeah well you moved
2: out at a young age right mm-hmm. at 17 was that because of this tension um so yeah. tell us about that time in your life because i knew it was a challenging one as well
1: it really was you know uh in hindsight you know going through all the trauma my mom carries a bullet in her arm still from fleeing the uh the secret war my parents read it uh, met in a refugee camp and so um you know seeing so much death in front of them, seeing all and having all that trauma that has never been taken care of or no treatment. Um, It was hard. You know, I was trying to be Hmong American when I went to school. And then when I got home, it was culturally just Hmong. And it was a clash of like, who am I? Who do I identify as? And my parents not understanding the being the American part. And so uh, because of that, we did clash a lot. There was um, some physical abuse. um, But in hindsight, um, you know, I I do believe that they were doing the best they could. See, my, mm-hmm. I'll go ahead finish. No, my baby sister, who uh, was kind of like a mistake, right? No. <laughs> no, my baby sister, she actually, I mean, they learned from, the, from parenting us and trying to force us into this box. They learned from all of that. And this is why I know that it was only the trauma. And they were trying to do the best they could mm-hmm. because with my baby sister, they really did really well. Interesting. Yeah.
0: You uh, really overcame a lot. You moved out of the house, as Marisa said, I think when you were 17. uh, You got into a relationship. uh, You had a a baby. Uh, At one point, you were homeless, sleeping in your car, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get to school, go to school and college. I mean, what did you take from all that? And, And what gave you the fortitude to, you know, stick it out?
1: You know, it's it's not a unique story. You see, it's like many people, many families go through this Um, right now. I I feel like the majority of families are feeling housing insecure, but um, you go on survival mode. Right. It's not a good place to be. Um, you know, and that's the a place where you need hope the most, right? You just need a second chance. And, um, going and becoming, uh, you know, being then my first relationship being a domestic violence relationship, I was cut off from my friends, from my family. And, um, you know, it was a really bad time in my life. And it, it took, you know, me to, uh, four years and being pregnant at six months. Um, You know, and he's still beating me uh, that I left, not because, you know, like I was like, okay, I'm going to leave, even though I'm this strong, rebellious young girl, um, because it's hard because they make you feel as if no one's going to ever care for you or love you. Right. And I was only 20 years old around that time. And so um, but I left because I, I knew I did not want my son to grow up in that place. And because of you know, I left. I didn't have anywhere to go, and lived in my car, couch surf with strangers. You know, um, after giving birth, uh, the nurses they were terrific. They followed me wherever I was at. They I don't know how they found out where I was at, but um, they would show up and teach me how to feed my son, bathe my son. I mean, nurses for me means so much. Even prior to the pandemic, they really saved my son, and my life. Hmm.
2: So when he was an infant, you were still homeless?
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. Still homeless, still couch surfing. I remember a time where um, it was cold, and so um, a friend connected me with another, their friend, and uh, I slept, you know, I didn't sleep at all, actually. I had a knife under my pillow and was willing and ready to do whatever I needed to do to keep my baby safe. Luckily, I didn't have to do anything, but still, I didn't get any sleep that night.
0: You know, some people have... A lot of people, as you suggested, have really terrible personal stories. And sometimes people just don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they hide it. They bury it, whatever. You're very open about it. and Has that worked for you?
1: Yeah, you know. Seems like it has. Well, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. I mean, it is very hard to talk about, right? And so for many, many years, I hid that because I was embarrassed of it. I was ashamed of it. But what I found, the more that I talked about it, is that there are so many people who are actually going through these things. I mean, like, you'll have people who probably are in the professional world who come to me afterwards and say, hey, I'm going through it right now. Right? It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic status is. It doesn't matter what culture you come from, ethnic group you're from. Like, people are suffering through it. And so for me, it's actually been very healing for me personally. And then not just that, the knowing that it's going to actually help someone else. Like, look, there's a, light at the end of the tunnel you know and so um, it's been really healing. You
2: are listening to Political
1: Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa
2: Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Our guest today is Oakland Mayor-elect Shang Tao. All right well let's talk about how you ended up going from being homeless with an infant which is just I can't even imagine Mm -hmm. um, to you enrolled at Merritt College. You got, I think, your AA there. You transferred to UC Berkeley, graduated valedictorian. But I think you were still struggling because I I read somewhere that you applied for an internship with Councilwoman Rebecca Kaplan in Oakland in part because it paid well.
1: Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah. So um, through the program called APAPA, it is a program that really tried to get APIs into local government. I was actually on my way to law school. I couldn't afford to pay for my son's quotes because he was outgrowing it so quickly. As parents, we all know that. I hear that. And so uh, this program uh, was pairing people up with local government and paying them $1,000 for that summer. So I admit, I took it because of the money. And um, I got paired up with Vice Mayor Kaplan uh, in Oakland City hall and that was when like my whole world changed i finally realized because you learn about local government probably like i don't know a semester <laughs> in public school. And so you don't really get the grasp of how important local government is. And so when I was there as an intern, I saw the legislator creating policies that truly uh, was actually um, creating these negative consequences or uh, unintended consequences for those families that live on the margins, families like mine. And I just thought that was crazy that no one with live life experience was actually sitting in those seats.
0: What made you decide to run yourself? Was there a moment or did somebody encourage you, Rebecca Kaplan or somebody mm-hmm. else?
1: So, when I ran for my city council seat, uh, it was a lot of community who really pushed me uh to really run for that seat and i and I'll be very honest with you, my response was well I don't have any I don't come from money, and I don't look like how politicians look so and I don't talk like them I don't think I you know like that's not me and so um but it took for community to really allow me to see that you know that's why I was needed right, and that they would help and support. And so that's, you know, and then I threw my name in the hat, you know, saying like, OK, well, you know, if that's if, if you're willing to support me and if you feel like I can be best fit in this position, then I will try it. Still not being too sure that I would fit what a politician looks like. And now uh, I have grown into <laughs> this politician role and it's, it's not about a look at all. It, the problem was that we didn't have enough people with my live life experience that look like me or what have you in these positions and it's important to make sure that we have that diversity.
2: Well, you served a term and then partway through, through your hat into the ring for mayor. Um, and I would say like, Watching this from across the bay, you were really seen as the progressive candidate in this race. You got a lot of labor support. What does that title mean to you? And what do you think it means to the people who supported you as you enter this office?
1: Yeah, you know, um, I am a progressive. And I think that over the many years, like somehow uh, being a progressive is um, has has been looked down kind of on just because of what people are uh ascribing to it. um, But I am a progressive in the sense that I want to move the city forward for working families, right? And I do believe that if we support those who are on the margins, that we all can have a better quality of life. So lifting from the bottom up. Um, what does
0: that mean in terms of policies?
1: Mm-hmm. So what does that mean in regards to policy is renter protections, right? So I'm a strong um, uh, advocate of passing strong renter protections. Not just that, but ensuring that, you know, renters can have access and pathways to home ownership. We know that's intergenerational wealth, right? So taking down some of those barriers. What that also looks like is that our school system, making sure that they are accessible and and that they're doing their part in regards to um, delivering what our students' needs. And so really looking at those who are most on the margins to see what resources they need, and then making sure that you uh, are delivering those resources so that, because again, I see all of this as an ecosystem. They're all interconnected. If our kids are uh, safe and kept busy and money in their pockets, then we, for public safety, we would be better off for that.
0: You mentioned public safety. What about the OPD and obviously crime, violence, um, just public safety? You yourself had an incident at your home uh, Mm -hmm. when your son was there alone. Somebody broke in, tried to rob. So how do you think about public safety in Oakland? Uh, And it's obviously...
1: And your relationship with the police. Yeah, Yeah. and
0: your relationship with police. And, you know, will you keep the police chief?
1: So I am going to keep the police chief. Uh, Chief Laurent Armstrong, I have a pretty strong relationship, even as a council president pro tem. I was able to really champion and author policies that we are seeing that are um, actually, uh, you know, actually getting us to the numbers that we need to be at. We are funded for 752 officers. And for the first time ever, because of the policies that I offer, we're at 700 officers. For me, I think it's a comprehensive approach. You know, if you talk about public safety, you have to talk about investments directly to communities, right, uh, investment directly to our youth. And so I just came out of a meeting because uh, where we talked about year round youth paid jobs. That's also public safety, right? But the response to me is also incredibly important, being a victim of crime myself, where they broke into my home, saw my son. They didn't care. They just went forward. It was traumatizing for my son. He's 16 now, and he's still traumatized. So the response of feeling like government will respond to things that are traumatic like that is incredibly important to me as well. Hmm.
2: Do you think that's kind of a new path for progressives? Because obviously there was a lot of backlash to the defund movement. And I think that a lot of what the left has wanted to see is – sort of globally supported except for if it's coming at the expense of response times and the visibility of police. Like, Mm -hmm. do you think you can
1: thread that needle? Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing that as a council member and as uh, the CEO of our beautiful city of Oakland. I think I am uh, in a position where I can bring people together. It's about bringing people together. And I have done that through many policies that I've passed, and I've been actually the only elected to be able to do that. And uh, that's what uh, I do believe that businesses, our residents, our voters, they're tired of the infighting. They just want a leader who can work with the stakeholders and deliver the results that are needed, right? So that the quality of life, everyday quality of life, that it's uplifted for everyone.
0: Um, You are going to be following Mayor Libby Schaaf, who's uh, leaving. Um, she did not endorse you. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts of her mayoralty? What did she do right? What did she do wrong? And most importantly, what will you do differently?
1: Yeah, the you know, um, it's, all, it's, a, it's a hard question, right? Because until you're in the hot seat, <laughs> uh, you don't know all the nuances that goes on. And there are a lot of nuances. Uh, what I can say that I would do different is around our unhoused community. Um, being a single mom, I know that um, You know, I wouldn't feel comfortable if I uh, went to a park and it was, you know, full of tents. And so for me, it's like we need to have dignified housing. We need to make sure that we are bringing the services to our unhoused, And that means opening up our public parcels and getting them off of our streets, out of the parks and onto these parcel with, um, you know, pallet shelters, with electricity, bring them the services they need so that we can have a safe space for them. And then at the same time, we have to build, build, build. Right. Affordable housing, deeply affordable housing, social housing, workforce housing, moderate uh, rate housing. Right. And so um, I'm a champion right now as a legislator for the EIFD, which is a way that we would be able to fund
0: We'll just say what say? Yeah, yes,
1: yeah. the Enhanced Infrastructure Financing it's District. kind of like
2: redevelopment not yes, to it is. make
1: it. <laughs> it is. I always say that it's the better version of redevelopment, right? Why? Uh, because there's strong oversights and not just that but these are projects that are pipelined and as the money come in, you already know which projects are going to be lined up next to actually be implemented. But it's the same kind right? of financing mechanism, yes. right? That
2: you're sort mm-hmm. of borrowing against future tax revenue in a specific area to help fund that. Yes. As That's Jerry good, Brown
0: did until he took it away. Yeah, Jerry Brown loved it until
2: <laughs> Well, he, he eliminated it. Yes. Uh, Lived it as mayor, not so much as mm-hmm. uh, as governor. Well, th- well, that's a good lead into the Oakland A's, the, the $12 billion question, which mm-hmm. is, I know you and most of the council are committed to keeping the A's in Oakland. That You want this waterfront ballpark. Um, and you've said you don't want to use public money. Mm-hmm. Is that a red line? Like, would you consider any general fund money? And what are the financing options if, if taxpayers don't step up?
1: Well, right now we have so many grant dollars that have already been secured uh, at the Senate level, assembly level. And so um, I am a huge proponent of moving forward with um, keeping the A's rooted here in Oakland. But again, it is a hard line in regards to taxpayers dollars, I will not be okay with using taxpayers dollars for uh, building out of the stadium. You know, um, there's going to be grant funding that are already coming in and secured hopefully there'll be more secure uh, grant funding in the future. And then not just that, but um, really, you know, I, I am hopeful that the A's will come to the table and keep an open mind.
0: You think they've been forthright with the city so far?
1: You know, I'm not going uh, I'm, to, I'm not, I can't genuinely comment on that just in, because I haven't been in those negotiations to be very, you know, uh, transparent. I haven't been in those negotiations. However, um, you know, at the very beginning when we were negotiating uh, through the media, <laughs> I did not like that. <laughs> I felt like uh the A's and uh the A's could have done a little bit better. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Um you uh Won this election by like 700 votes. I, you, I know you know the exact number because I heard you say it on TV mm-hmm. the other day. A little bit less than 700.
1: Yes. Uh, now it's now we have the final count. It's 677. Okay. Votes. <laughs> so
0: you know there was a lot initially. You know you were behind, and then with ranked choice voting, you caught up and ultimately went ahead. Do you, given that, uh, do you feel does that affect the way you think about reaching out to voters who didn't vote for you or, or for whom you weren't their first, second, or third choice?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it shows that the the city is. Um, you know, uh, divided in regards to how we're facing the different crises that we're going through. But for me, as mayor of the city of Oakland, I represent everyone. And it is going to be my responsibility to reach out to those who may have maybe put me as number two, three, four, or five, or maybe I didn't even land on their ballot. And I take that very seriously. So I, you know, it's, it's about being in community. It's about having, uh, uh, relaying to community what the plans are, and how we gain a better, stronger quality of life. And that's truly what the call, to action is is you know our streets are the dirtiest it's ever it's ever been let's clean it up right our unhoused community is out of control let's figure out the root causes for public safety and so for me it's about delivering on the promises that I made on my campaign which is touches on all of these points and I think through that um, I'll be really representing the city of Oakland Mm -hmm.
2: all right we're short on time but I'm curious you know we talked about you having your first son while you were homeless he's now a teenager watching his mom become mayor of the city yeah. you live in. What's his reaction been to all of this?
1: Uh, his first reaction is, Mom, can I go see the jail that's inside of City Hall now? <laughs> the, Why? Old, the old jail. Yeah, <laughs> there's an old jail in there. Uh, but that is, But no, he's so excited, and he's you know, he tells me all the time that he's really proud of me. Oh, that's um, nice. And Not
0: embarrassed, as a lot of teenage yeah, kids would no.
1: be. Yeah, I thought he would be embarrassed, but no, he says that he's really proud of me. I mean, him and I, we... we we basically grew up together, yeah. mm. so he remembers when we were really, really poor and he couldn't have that toy. Mm. To now, it's like um, I'm like, honey, you can spend a little bit of money. Aww, <laughs> it's okay. Oh, yeah. That's great. Thank you, Alex Shengda. We really appreciate your time.
2: But thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter. You can find that online at kqed.org/newsletter. Our
0: engineer today is Jim Bennett, and our producer is Guy Marzorati. I'm Scott Schaefer.
2: And I'm Marisa Lagos. Have a good one.